Disc 6 Churchill in Old Age When Churchill returned to power in 1951, all this was still far ahead. The old order seemed to have re-established itself far more quickly than the smashing defeat of six years earlier implied. And it was an old order. Churchill was undisputedly the greatest Englishman alive. Yet he was now fighting time. Two years into his last premiership, just after giving a speech to visiting Italians in Downing Street, always history-obsessed, he had been lecturing them on the Roman legions in England. He slumped down with a major stroke. Hurried to bed, he nevertheless recovered enough to hold a cabinet meeting the following day, though saying little. But he then deteriorated so fast his doctor thought he would die. He lost the use of his left arm, spoke only in a slurred mumble, and was unable to stand. He was hurried to his home at Chartwell. There, over two months, he recovered. It is an astonishing story in several ways. First, there is the spectacle of Churchill's amazing willpower and stamina, bringing him from near death to a position where he could make a major speech to the Tory conference and then engage in full Commons exchanges within a few months. Even more astonishing, the country did not know at the time what had happened. There were vague rumours, but the Prime Minister's grave illness was kept secret to all outside a very close circle. In the end, he broke the secret himself, mentioning it a couple of years later in Parliament, by which time it no longer mattered much. Before this stroke, and indeed after it, other ministers found the old lion entirely exasperating. He had brilliant moments, both in set-piece speeches and in conversation, but he was a speaking memorial to his own greatness and therefore naturally inclined to ramble on. He was described as senile, past it and gaga in the memoirs of other members of the cabinet. They wrote of their hatred for him as well as their love. Sometimes he let his private secretary write a speech for him. Sometimes he forgot what he was going to say halfway through a sentence. Sometimes even foreign leaders such as the US President Harry Truman expressed boredom at his long-windedness. But the person most angered, hurt and frustrated was Anthony Eden, who felt that after ten years of waiting and half a lifetime at the top of the Tory tree, it was his turn to govern. Prime Ministers always find it hard to give up. Churchill resisted Eden by frequent promises that he was likely to go at some time in the future, always then putting it off. He would reshuffle his ministers, offer Eden unsuitable alternative jobs, row with him, then raise his hopes, only to dash them again. Had the pair of them not been the most powerful men in Britain, and had it not been rather cruel, it would have been almost funny. Churchill had become increasingly doubtful as to whether Eden would be any good as Prime Minister, lecturing him about the importance of keeping in with the Americans, snapping at his suggestions and complaining to friends that he didn't think Antony can do it. If all else failed, Churchill, as ever, used jokes. When the death was announced of a minister's father, Churchill greeted yet another delegation sent to urge his retirement with a mournful reference to the deceased. Quite young, too, only ninety. Age and illness would be a big theme of the Tory years, as they had been in the latter stage of Attlee's government. Eden was frequently ill with a biliary duct problem, made worse by botched surgery. By the time he finally got the top job halfway through the decade, he was physically depleted. Macmillan later said of him that he was like a racehorse who had been trained to win the Derby in 1938, but was not let out of the starting stalls until 1955. So why did Churchill carry on for so long? Undoubtedly, part of the reason was that he simply could not bear to let go. But there was a nobler reason. The old man did have a cause.
Churchill's life had been dominated by war. He came from a grand military family, brought up surrounded by the stories and mementos of battles won. He went to fight for the empire in the Sudan, then saw the Boer War at first hand as a war correspondent who was captured and escaped. In the First World War, he was a highly controversial First Lord of the Admiralty, then a colonel in France. After it, as war secretary, he tried to strangle the Bolshevik Revolution with an entirely unsuccessful Western War in support of the Whites against Lenin. His great years were as Britain's war leader in the world fight against fascism. Many of his critics, from socialists who remembered him sending tanks against trade union strikers to little Englanders, reviled him as a natural warmonger. So it is interesting that his last great crusade was an attempt to stop a war, this time a nuclear one. Whether it was the wisdom of age or vanity about his unique role as a global statesman, Winston Spencer Churchill became the world's leading peacenik. His speeches resounded with dark warnings of the catastrophe just ahead. As early as the 1950 election campaign, speaking in Edinburgh, he had coined the modern use of summit when calling for a leader's parley with the Russians. The arrival of the hydrogen bomb increased the sense of world panic, and Churchill worried in particular about an American atom bomb strike against the Chinese in North Korea, as indeed did the Chinese. He was struggling with a new world, understanding the nuclear threat, but also thinking in a highly traditional way. As soon as he returned to power in 1951, Churchill had fired off worried requests for information about the ease with which Russian paratroopers could seize strategic locations in London and the carnage that would be caused by different kinds of surprise nuclear attack. Above all, he thought that if the atom bomb menace existed, Britain had better be as menacing as she could manage. In December 1951, he had authorised Britain's first nuclear test, and at the Montebello Islands off Australia, HMS Plym, one of the war surplus frigates which had escaped being broken up or mothballed, was instead vaporised by Britain's first nuclear bomb. Then, in 1954, he gave the go-ahead, with weary resignation, for work on a British hydrogen bomb, as the price we pay to sit at the top table. He told his cabinet, if the United States were tempted to undertake a forestalling war, we could not hope to remain neutral. We must avoid any action which would weaken our power to influence United States policy. Britain would only have a voice in restraining America if it was itself a player. The fact must be faced that unless we possessed thermonuclear weapons, we should lose our influence and standing in world affairs. But for Churchill, it was precautionary despair. His real campaign was for a new settlement between capitalist West and Marxist East. London and Washington did not see eye to eye on nuclear matters, as we have seen. Britain had been abruptly cut off from American nuclear secrets, and in the early 50s, Britain was more immediately threatened. Russian bombers could not yet reach the United States, so American bases in Britain and RAF ones would make this country the first Soviet nuclear target. Dreadful estimates of the carnage were circulated through Whitehall. Yet for the Americans, nuclear war was still something that happened abroad. Churchill saw the death of Stalin as a heaven-sent opportunity to reopen friendlier relations with Moscow. Though as passionately anti-communist as ever, he was worried that the U.S. president, his wartime comrade Dwight Eisenhower, was too rigidly anti-Russian. Churchill frankly thought Ike stupid and unable to comprehend that nuclear weapons were far more than the latest military technology. This reflected an accurate gulf of perception. Eisenhower believed nuclear weapons were a mere extension of ordinary weaponry 
and would soon be regarded as conventional. Eisenhower and his Secretary of State, Dulles, in turn, feared that in his dotage, Churchill had become an appeaser, though Churchill always used the term easement or settlement of East-West relations as his preferred description. Again and again he tried to persuade Eisenhower of the virtues of a superpower summit, and offered to go to Moscow himself alone, at a time when the Americans would not dream of setting foot on Soviet territory to clear the way. Dulles was strongly hostile. Churchill bitterly called him that bastard. At last, having got an insincere half-promise from Eisenhower that he could at least contact the Soviets about some meeting on neutral ground, he fired off the invitation too early, became embroiled in a white-hot cabinet row, and had to watch his vision crumble. At the top of the rival powers, no one but him really wanted to make peace just then. Everybody was too busy preparing the next generation of nuclear devices, thinking more like generals, less like statesmen. Churchill was arguing for détente twenty years before it happened. Perhaps he had been doing it with a selfish tremor, hoping for a final triumph. But as visions go, it was quite something for an eighty-year-old. Churchill's other overseas initiatives were less impressive. He was losing the battle about the empire, and he knew it, even as he wrapped himself in mystical prose about the new young queen and the coming Elizabethan age. If the real conflict was with the Soviet Union and her allies, what price Britain's other post-imperial commitments? What price trying to hang on to control in Palestine, where desperate refugees were determined to settle, and where Jewish terrorists were killing British soldiers? What price Britain's piggy-in-the-middle role in Greece, trying to protect an unpopular monarchy against a communist insurgency? A little later on, trying to hold on in Egypt or Iran would prompt the same question. The private thinking of Whitehall was laid out in a fascinating memo from top officials to a cabinet committee shortly after the Americans had upped the ante in the nuclear race by exploding their first H-bombs. The British cabinet paper was frank about the overall position. It is clear that ever since the end of the war we have tried to do too much, with the result that we have only rarely been free from the danger of economic crisis. About Europe, Churchill had long been inclined to make dramatic-sounding suggestions. He had offered to merge British and French citizenship during the darkest days of 1940. After the war, he was not averse to a fully politically united Western Europe, though he assumed the British Empire could not be a full member. When he came back to power, one of the most immediate issues was whether Britain would join early moves towards that united Western Europe. In 1950, the ailing Labour government had decided against though after very little thought. When the French foreign minister, Robert Schumann, announced that his country intended to share sovereignty over iron and coal with West Germany, so binding the two old enemies tightly together in their industrial effort, he gave the British government an ultimatum. Attlee was out of the country, and Ernie Bevin was already very ill, describing himself with no exaggeration as half-dead. It was left to Herbert Morrison to give a hurried response. He had been at the theatre and was found by officials at the Ivy Restaurant in London's Covent Garden. The plan, which would one day lead to the European Union, was explained to Morrison in a back room, piled with chairs. He thought for a moment and shook his head. It's no good. We can't do it. The Durham miners won't wear it. For many Tories, watching from the sidelines, this was a disastrous mistake. Macmillan, who had been observing things from Strasbourg, where he was in Bevan's vacated hotel room, thought the decision catastrophic later telling his constituents it was a black week for Britain. And the country might pay a catastrophic price for isolating itself under the socialists from Europe. So, there was general expectation that Tory Britain 
would change tack. There was already a strong case for doing so. The empire was falling away. Relations with the Americans had already been damaged over the atom bomb, as well as disputes about Palestine and Greece. Here was a moment for the Tories to decide to ride another horse too, and join the young European club. Churchill declined to do so. Offered the chance to take up common European defence, he ridiculed the notion to the despair of Macmillan and some of the younger Conservatives. He showed no interest in deeper involvement. He was the last imperialist whose rhetoric about the English-speaking peoples was more heartfelt than his suggestions of anti-communist alliances between Italians, Belgians, and the French. Washington was pivotal to his world, as Paris never could be, still less Brussels. He wanted summits on the H-bomb and a place on the world stage, not local deals with provincial nations half desolated by war and invasion. The Foreign Office, where Eden was ensconced, was also hostile to entanglements with the Europeans. Not surprising either, perhaps, since its great embassies and worldwide reach made iron and steel deals near at hand seem parochial. The manner of Churchill's decision-making on Europe, though, was worrying to his contemporaries. It was never properly discussed in cabinet. It was as much a shrug as a decision. It was never announced. It was never thrashed through. It might as well have been taken in the ivy. Perhaps, as with nuclear peacemaking, it was just too early for the decisive move. Yet there is an unmistakable sense of anticlimax about Churchill's last government. Outside, the world was changing. New leaders were coming to prominence. Here, it seemed. Britain was being distracted by one moving curtain called too many. Strikes and money. Jack is all right. Conservatives of the fifties have had a particularly bad press for their willingness to stick with the Attlee consensus, allowing the country's underlying economic weakness to worsen. There is much in this. Churchill had fought the 1951 election, promising to defend the new welfare state, and was inclined to speak wistfully of the case for coalition government in peace as in war, a theme first heard in 1945. He felt warmly towards the small Liberal Party and had half promised to help them by introducing some kind of proportional voting, though this was quickly scuppered by the Conservative hierarchy. He railed against class war and deliberately appointed the moderate, appeasing lawyer Walter Monckton to deal with trade union and labour matters. Yet there was one moment where Britain might have experienced a Thatcher-sized jolt, a British Revolution thirty years early. It came on Churchill's watch in 1952 when his young Chancellor, Rab Butler, proposed cutting the pound free from the system of fixed exchange rates agreed after the war at Bretton Woods. The scheme was called Robot. In detail, it was fiendishly complicated because of Britain's network of obligations to so many other countries using sterling as their reserve. In essence, though, it was very simple. The pound would float partly free, or rather fall dramatically against the dollar, thus giving Britain's struggling exporters a huge one-off boost. The government would be unable to fund its old obligations, the huge overseas defence establishment, and much of the new welfare state. Grand house-building projects would be put on hold, and unemployment would initially rise. But on the other hand, the bleeding of reserves and the periodic balance of payments crises would be a thing of the past. Britain would get the chance of a fresh start, not unlike post-war West Germany. Imports would be cut, exports would rise, sterling's freedom in the world would be re-established, and the alternative future of a genteel, endless decline might be averted. It was nothing less than a free market national coup, which would, among other things, infuriate the Americans. 
The historian Peter Hennessy has compared it to the desperation of the Suez War. Robot was the desperate and risky response of frazzled yet clever men who had run out of both caution and alternative ideas. Robot, which was never revealed at the time, caused a rare row over matters of high principle inside the government and was eventually scuppered by the foreign secretary Anthony Eden and by Churchill's own growing unease about its domestic implications. It was the kind of scheme which might have been pushed through by a determined, vigorous prime minister armed with a mandate for change, but was too much for an old man elected on a blandly consensual ticket. And it was the only example of such radical thinking for years to come, at least at this level of government. For the most part, this was a government which ran on domestic autopilot. Above all, in the eyes of later critics, it failed to take on rising trade union power. The unions had swollen in numbers to record levels of membership. Their leaders tended to be working-class men who had left school in their teens to cut coal, drive lorries, or load ships before becoming full-time organisers. In the fifties, they still had personal memories of the general strike of 1926. Bitterness about the depression had been partly assuaged after Labour repealed anti-union legislation, giving them powerful immunities in the case of strike action. These national leaders, men such as Arthur Deakin, Sam Watson, and Bill Caron, tended to be patriotic and socially conservative, ready to back the bomb and NATO, and aligned against the left in Labour Party confrontations. They were well able to do deals with middle-of-the-road Tory ministers. More were Catholics than they were communists. But their greatest card was the economy: very high rates of employment, high demand from customers, starved of goods, and relatively high corporate profits meant that there was an insatiable demand for skilled labour. It was easy for firms to pass on higher costs caused by generous wage settlements. And in terms of days lost to strikes, Britain's record was not bad in the fifties, better than many economies which were growing faster. Butler at the Treasury confessed that he had no wages policy, only Walter's friendship with trade union leaders. And when Monckton and Churchill did a deal to stop a bus driver's Christmas strike because it was too disturbing, the Prime Minister phoned Butler late at night to tell him the good news. On what terms had he settled? The Chancellor nervously asked. Churchill replied, "There's old cock. We did not like to keep you up. Why fight the unions? It was a horribly difficult task anyway." In a statist economy, ministers were abnormally close to the power of the public sector unions. By later standards, an astonishing number of industrial workers were employed by the state. Some 1.7 million people in transport, the mines, and the power industry alone. Again and again, from the railways to the power stations, from bus workers to coal miners to engineering, Monckton and his successors bought them off. Ministers knew perfectly well what they were doing. In his diary for June 1955, for instance, Macmillan, when Chancellor, reflected on the settlement of a railway strike which had done much harm to the economy. He comforted himself with the thought that the men got little more than they could have had earlier, which may have a deflationary effect and do something to stop the seesaw of wages and prices which has begun to show itself in the last year or two. By 1958, as Prime Minister, he steeled himself to hold out against just the kind of transport strike that Churchill would have settled with a phone call. Yet Macmillan too never quite took it seriously, and anyway, by then the unions were changing in ways that made it harder to cope with them, not easier. Built up over decades by amalgamations and local deals, they were sprawling, baggy monsters which bore little relation to organisation by plant or industry. A single factory might have a maze of competing and mutually suspicious unions operating inside it. 
This led to the growth in power of the shop stewards, often younger and more militant people who had filled the power gap during the war years when their elders were away. They could get deals for the people around them which were better than national agreements. By the mid-fifties there were scores of thousands of them. It was ruefully noted that Britain now had more shop stewards than soldiers. Wildcat strikes were more common than full-scale national disputes, and they caused more disruption and uncertainty. Meanwhile, as the old guard died off, more left-wing leaders were quietly moving up the union hierarchy. A good example was Frank Cousins, a former miner and truck driver from Nottinghamshire, who was running the road hauliers in Churchill's day, and who became leader of the Transport and General Workers' Union in the year of Suez, when more than half a million TNG men voted for him. He was Macmillan's antagonist in 1958, and became a major headache for successive Conservative governments, leading strikes in the car industry, among busmen and elsewhere, before being brought into the 1964 Labour cabinet by Harold Wilson. For a time, he was the most famous or infamous of the brothers, but there were plenty of cousins. If strikes were one small cloud on the edge of the sunny skies of the Tory years, inflation was another. It was always there in the fifties, getting worse as the decade continued, but not yet quite a crisis. Although with so many older people living off annuities and savings, it began eating into the lives of many middle-class families. The problem was simple to describe, hard to sort particularly after the rejection of radical measures such as robot. The country was exporting all it could, but its appetite for manufactured imports was insatiable. Britain no longer had enough overseas investments and was not earning enough through producing well-made, competitively priced goods in order to earn the living its people now thought they deserved. In other times, the gap had been easily closed by invisibles, earnings from banking, insurance and shipping, where Britain remained a world leader. It might have done so in the 50s and 60s too, except that Britain was spending such a historically vast amount of money on defence in peacetime and spending that money abroad. In effect, the weaker British economy was subsidising the fast-growing West German one because of the huge expenditure on the British Army of the Rhine. The entirely predictable result of the balance of payments gap was that the pound was under constant pressure. There were periodic devaluations, which damaged the reputation of the politicians in charge at the time, though the 1949 Labour devaluation is widely credited with kick-starting the Tory good times which followed. Trying to maintain British power through the Stirling era, not just most of the old Commonwealth except Canada, but other countries including most of Scandinavia and traditional trading partners such as Portugal, meant that defending the value of the pound was an issue inflamed by pride and political sensitivity. In the Tory years, it was another problem postponed. Defend the pound and Britain's global self-image, or let it fall and help Britain's exporters? StopGo saw sudden tightenings of fiscal policy, then a stab on the accelerator as government tried to break into a new era of growth, before slamming on the brakes to deal with the resulting surge in inflation. Until the post-war Bretton Woods system broke down in 1971, there would be regular arguments about devaluation. For politicians at the time, it was like trying to solve a puzzle with one too many parts. The Purge It is the 24th of March, 1954, late in the afternoon, outside Winchester Castle. The great hall of the medieval building, with its famous fake of Arthur's round table, created in the 1300s and painted for Henry VIII, is now empty. It has served duty all day as a courtroom. Now, guilty verdicts have been passed, and long since, the prison sentences meted out. 
but still the prisoners have been kept in the small whitewashed cells under the castle, an elderly Rolls-Royce waiting to take them to jail. The trial that has just finished made front-page headlines for days across Britain, and there were fears of a minor riot when the guilty men were led outside. They included a young peer of the realm, Edward John Barrington Douglas Scott Montague, known as Lord Montague of Bewley, a Daily Mail journalist called Peter Wildblood, and a gentleman farmer, Major Michael Pitt Rivers. Montague had just been sentenced to twelve months in prison, and the other two, eighteen months. Their crime had been conspiring to induce two RAF men to commit indecent acts. In other words, they were homosexuals. There was a great purge of homosexuals going on in the Britain of the fifties, whipped up by the newspapers and by a clique of politicians and officials. The press had been full of salacious, if untrue, stories of wild orgies fueled by champagne, the corruption of Boy Scouts, and, perhaps worse than all this, of men who had associated with their social inferiors. So there was, perhaps, some reason to worry that when the three men were led away, there would be angry attacks by the good burghers and women of Winchester. And, indeed, there were such scenes. But the attacks, the hammering of umbrellas, yelling, hissing and shaking of fists, was directed at the car taking away the prosecution witnesses. When eventually Montague, Wildblood and Pitt Rivers were seen by the women who had waited so long, the mood was rather different. As Wildblood himself wrote later, it was some moments before I realised they were not shouting insults, but words of encouragement. They tried to pat us on the back and told us to keep smiling, and when the doors were shut they went on talking through the windows and gave the thumbs-up sign and clapped their hands. Much later, when Wildblood was finally released from prison, he found his neighbours and colleagues just as supportive. The English are often unexpected. Homosexual acts between men had long been illegal, but as so long as they happened discreetly and in private, and did not involve minors, they had been relatively rarely prosecuted. The war, as we have seen, saw an increase in homosexual activity. After it, however, the official mood changed dramatically. In the last full year before the war, there had been 320 prosecutions for gross indecency, a common way of describing homosexual behaviour. By 1952, the number had risen to 1,626. The prosecutions for attempted sodomy or indecent assault were up from 822 to over 3,000. If these still seem relatively small numbers, the ripples of fear and intimidation spread far further, and in general, the number of homosexual offences known to the police had risen from 1938 to 1955 by 850%. A small number of men were responsible. The crackdown had started under Herbert Morrison, but the toughest years were under the conservative politicians of the 50s. The purge was led by the former Nuremberg interrogator of Nazi leaders, Churchill's Home Secretary, Sir David Maxwell Fife. With him was the Director of Public Prosecutions, Theobald Matthew, who would often attend court to watch the buggers be sentenced, as well as Sir John Knott Bower, a Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, determined to rip the cover off London's filth spots. They were supported by a press which ran articles on the secret world of mincing pansies, or explained to stout-hearted readers how to spot a homo. There were special drives to root out buggery in the army, and worried Whitehall inquiries into alleged lesbian conspiracies in the RAF. Lesbianism was not in itself a crime, allegedly because Queen Victoria had refused to believe it existed, but was an offence in the armed services. Attacking homosexuals helped sell papers, and certainly played to the prejudices of many politicians and clergymen, but there was more to it than that. The early fifties was also the time of maximum fear about communism, subversion and spying not without reason. 
The atom bomb spy Klaus Fuchs had caused appalling damage to British intelligence by the time he was exposed in 1950. In 1951, two of the famous KGB spies, Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, had defected to the Soviet Union. Though a proper version of their story would not break publicly until 1955, the British government was under American pressure to show that it was tough on subversive networks. This was not formally discussed at home, but friendly overseas journalists were briefed. In October 1953, the Sydney Daily Telegraph reported that Commander E. A. Cole of Scotland Yard had spent three months in Washington consulting with the FBI after strong United States advice to Britain to weed out homosexuals as hopeless security risks from important government jobs. With the arrival of Not Bower as the new Commissioner of Police, the plan was extended as a war on all vice. So moralism and national security worries intertwined. The homosexual, so the thinking went, had to live a double life. He was open to blackmail. He moved in mysterious circles. He was morally weak. The homosexual was therefore, by definition, a security risk. Burgess and Blunt had indeed lived secret sexual lives, and the habits of essential deception, the feeling of belonging to a hidden and important circle, connected seamlessly to their lives as spies. Nor was the blackmail argument ridiculous. A few years after the Montague case, John Vassell, a homosexual clerk who worked at the Admiralty and had been photographed in Moscow by the KGB at a gay sex party, was uncovered as a spy. Vassell was a conspicuous consumer, living far beyond his means. Yet no one had asked the obvious questions about where his money was coming from. Again, there was much speculation about a wider homosexual and traitorous network, this time involving ministers too. The gap in official logic was that homosexual men were open to blackmail and had to live a secret life precisely because of the law that was now being so vigorously and aggressively enforced. Some men were self-confident enough to survive. The Labour MP Tom Dryberg, for one, who used the Commons toilets to proposition an impressive array of fellow politicians as well as parliamentary staff, and Macmillan's colleague, the lover of his wife, Lord Boothby. But others, including the Conservative MP Ian Harvey, convicted of an offence with a soldier in Hyde Park, and the actor John Gielgud, arrested in Chelsea in 1953, were not so lucky. There was a very extensive and semi-open gay world in theatrical circles. Alec Guinness had been fined for importuning in 1946, for instance, but had escaped press attention by giving the false name Herbert Pocket. Other celebrities of the time, such as Noel Coward and the impresario Binky Beaumont, hardly bothered to hide their sexuality. But the wave of prosecutions caused terror among those living outside the charmed circle of theatrical and political power. Montague had fallen into the middle of the police operation first suggested by Washington. A premier peer of the realm, he was about as well connected as it was possible to be. In his time with the Grenadier Guards, he had served in Palestine during the worst of the Jewish terrorist attacks, and had an informal supper with the King, Queen, and future Queen Elizabeth. In the advertising world, he had helped launch the patriotic new comic, The Eagle, the idea of a North Country vicar called Marcus Morris, who himself, said Montague later, had a distinctly unclerical sexual appetite, as he adored showgirls. The peer would go on to become famous for his National Motor Museum at Bewley, help found English heritage, and marry twice. But he was bisexual, something he had suspected at Eton, and was confirmed in the guards. At one party in London, the aristocratic officers were entertained by a young naval rating doing a striptease, who would later become a national treasure as the jazz musician George Melly. Yet Montague always insisted that he had made no improper advances to two boy scouts, the reason for his arrest. 
Having been acquitted then, he was drawn into the later Wildblood case. The prosecution stooped to forging an entry in his passport to try and discredit an alibi, used illegal tapping of phones, entered and searched private houses without warrants, and put appalling pressure on two RAF men to inform against their social superiors in order to avoid many years of imprisonment for themselves. The witnesses, as they later admitted, had been carefully coached in their stories. Peter Wildblood's unusual response to the prosecution was to declare openly and unashamedly that he was a homosexual, or, in the language of the day, an invert, and had a right to be treated with respect. He declined to apologise. His language was very far from the gay liberation rhetoric of modern times, but it was clear and dignified. I am no more proud of my condition than I would be of having a glass eye or a hair lip. On the other hand, I am no more ashamed of it than I would be of being colourblind or of writing with my left hand. He pointed out that Lord Montague had done patriotic service in the Grenadier Guards, and that Montague's co-accused cousin, Pitt Rivers, had served bravely in the war, while Wildblood himself, though he turned out to be a terrible pilot, had served with the RAF as a meteorologist in Africa. These were all, apart from their sexuality, entirely normal members of the patriotic upper-middle-class establishment, about as different from the Cambridge spies in their views as it would be possible to be. And, of course, since homosexuality is spread throughout society, some of the establishment was gay, too. Lord Wolfenden's famous committee, formed in 1954 to consider the law on homosexuality, was headed by a former public school headmaster and university vice-chancellor, and included Tory politicians, a senior official in the Girl Guides, a judge, and so on. When Wolfenden later discovered that his own son was gay, he wrote asking him to keep out of his way and to wear rather less make-up. The committee, however, took evidence from Wildblood, among many others, and after three years of private hearings in the Home Office, duly recommended in 1957 a change in the law, legalising private homosexual activity between consenting adults aged over 21. By then the country's mood seemed to have changed. There was a feeling that the tactics used against Montague and the others were unfair and underhand. The hostility to government interference and meddling, which had contributed to the fall of Attlee's Labour administration, was beginning to stretch to private matters. When Wildblood was released from prison, he found his working-class neighbours in Islington to be cheerily friendly. When Montague was released from Wakefield Prison, where his fellow inmates had included Fuchs, he got a similar reception, though it was not universal. At lunch in the fashionable Mirabelle restaurant in London's West End, he recalled one or two of the neighbouring tables disapproved. The atmosphere became unpleasant, and remarks were made which were obviously meant to be overheard with intent to wound. At this point, however, the then leader of the opposition, Hugh Gateskill, who was also lunching there, intervened. He could see perfectly well what was going on. After a while, he laid down his napkin and crossed the room to our table. How nice to see you back, he said, holding out his hand, which I shook with surprise and gratitude. The action silenced the surrounding hostility. There was continued hostility to homosexuals then, and there is today, but the so-called permissive society of the 60s was already being forged by public reaction in the second half of the Tory 50s to cases such as these. For now, Parliament disagreed. In the first parliamentary debates on homosexual law reform, the Home Secretary, Maxwell Fife, said he did not think the country would wear such a change. Had he been present in the Mirabelle restaurant, or had he stood a few years earlier outside Winchester Castle, he might have realised he was already out of date. The Spies, Tom and Guy in Moscow Britain's spy networks were far more effectively hidden by upper-class connections than by the homosexual inclinations of a few of Moscow's men. 
The full story of the Cambridge spies does not belong here, but to the thirties and the divided loyalties of the anti-fascists. The tale of how a cluster of rebellious former public school boys came to believe that the fight against poverty and Hitler required their allegiance to the bloodthirsty regime of Stalinist Russia, and then how they infiltrated the British intelligence and diplomatic services before and during the Second World War is well known. The sons of a diplomat, a naval officer, an Anglican clergyman, and a cabinet minister, they were about as traditionalist and patriotic in their upbringing as it was possible to be. They remained quintessentially English afterwards too. The Labour MP and journalist Tom Dryberg visited one of them, Guy Burgess, a few years after he had dramatically defected with Donald Maclean, and it was dramatic. Maclean's pregnant wife had just cooked a special ham for dinner at their home near Churchill's country house when Burgess arrived and raced him off to Southampton for the overnight ferry to St Marlow. In Moscow, Dryberg found Burgess outside a hotel, his bird-bright ragamuffin face tanned by the Caucasian sun. Burgess explained his job involved trying to get the Russians to translate and publish the novels of E. M. Forster. In his flat, Burgess strummed the Eton boating song on his piano and proudly showed that his suit still had a stitched badge reading "Messrs. Tom Brown of Eton, High Street, Tailors." The Moscow defectors would die there, mildly regretful but entirely unrepentant. While two further traitors, Sir Anthony Blunt, who became surveyor of the Queen's pictures, and the economist John Cairncross, privately confessed and were left unexposed. And unpunished for much of their lives. Did they matter really? They did. Between them, British traitors helped the Soviet Union acquire nuclear weapons earlier than would otherwise have happened, passed huge amounts of information to Stalin's secret police, were directly responsible for the deaths of scores of British and other Western agents at the hands of the KGB, and, in Philby's case, managed to stymie an American attempt to create an uprising in Albania. So keeping that wretched country under the heel of one of the most primitive tyrannies of modern times, their story has been made glamorous by the gilded associations of pre-war Cambridge and the idealism of being anti-Nazi when part of the British establishment were not. Films and countless books, some by the spies themselves, have romanticised them. Yet the consequences of their spying were squalid and dangerous. Nor were they actually the most successful spies. Less glamorous characters, such as Alan Nunn May, a scientist. And Fuchs were more important. It was the Dutch-born George Blake who escaped from occupied Holland at the age of twenty, joined the Royal Navy, was recruited by MI6, and captured by the communists in Korea, who probably caused most damage. He had been shocked, he later said, by the effects of American bombing of Korean villages, and passed the names of four hundred British-controlled agents in Germany to the Russians, with predictable consequences for many of them. Some think he was brainwashed. Blake was caught. And in 1961 was given a prison sentence of 42 years, which remains the longest sentence ever imposed by a British court. He, of course, was not a dapper and well-connected old Etonian with friends to tip him off. What is it about the British and spying? Other Western nations had their post-war spying scandals, particularly the Americans and the West Germans, but nowhere was quite so gripped as Britain by the actions of Soviet agents. Class and sex are undeniably part of the answer. But there is another half-buried theme: British anti-Americanism. Philby claimed all his life that he was a British patriot who felt that the country was simply allied with the wrong side. Another student in the same Cambridge college as Philby, at the same time, though they never knew one another, was Enoch Powell, who came to much the same conclusion a few years later. This anti-Americanism was something which could bring together patriotic right-wingers and left-wingers in a common cause. 
Washington was constantly warning London about intelligence lapses and the possibility of traitors. But even when Russian defectors brought descriptions of McLean and Philby to MI5, they were languidly dismissed. Unless there were even more traitors, even higher in the system, and Philby was close to the top, then disdain and smugness must have been to blame for the grotesque failures of security. Once traitors were discovered, there was then a national case for not making too much of it because of the angry reaction from the American intelligence services, on whom Britain relied very heavily. Politicians were obliged to explain, or failed to explain, the defectors and the rising suspicions of third and fourth and then fifth men still uncovered. Macmillan, as Foreign Secretary in 1955, was obliged to knock down the idea that Philby might be a Russian spy who had tipped off Burgess and Maclean four years earlier. He was, of course, and had. Later, after yet more spies had been uncovered, Macmillan was told by an excited Sir Roger Hollis of MI5 that the organisation had arrested Vassal. Macmillan seemed dejected at the news, and when Hollis said he didn't seem very pleased, replied, No, I'm not pleased at all. When my gamekeeper shoots a fox, he doesn't go and hang it up outside the master of foxhounds' drawing room. He buries it out of sight. Macmillan, my now Prime Minister, lamented that there would be a great public trial, the security services would be blamed, and there will be a debate in the House of Commons, and the government will probably fall. Why the devil did you catch him? More concerned about harassing the press, Macmillan got two scalps when journalists refused to give their sources for allegations concerning Vassal and were briefly imprisoned. It was not surprising that people suspected an establishment cover-up by chaps who belonged to the same clubs and did not like their dirty washing flapping in public. Public Laughter Had anyone been asked to define British humour in the aftermath of the war, they would probably have come up with the genteel, meticulous cartoonists of Punch, whose neatly cross-hatched ink world stretched from Westminster in the home counties to the more remote areas of the Scottish Highlands, but included little in between. They might have mentioned the rude postcards of the seaside tradition, fat, overhanging bosoms and little willies. There were some rather lame newspaper comic strips, the radio surrealism of It's That Man Again, the exuberance of Flanders and Swan, and on film, the warm, ultimately optimistic humour of George Formby and the Ealing comedies. From the late thirties to the mid-forties, the world had been harsh enough, perhaps, without harsh laughter, too. What Britain had had, above all, was music halls. Even in the fifties, musical reviews were still being widely performed, weaving a little light innuendo among the songs. Few of the hundreds of once-famous double acts, singers, comedians, slapstick artists, clowns and acrobats from the Victorian and Edwardian heyday of music hall had been recorded, though they provided the main form of mass entertainment for half a century. This was a powerful culture which required skilled, physically tough and consistent artistes who could sing, dance and tell jokes, the original variety acts. Some of the fun can still be glimpsed in modern Christmas pantos and seaside summer shows, though these must be a pale shadow of that lost, garish gaiety. After the war, there was a surge of one-way traffic as music hall acts were taken up by the BBC Light programme, and when, in the 50s, television began to take off, a final generation of people who had learned their trade in small seaside and provincial theatres would arrive to hoof it, clown and sing for the cameras. Bruce Forsyth, Jimmy Tarbuck, Ken Dodd, Eric Morecambe, Ernie Wise and their rivals were the last products of the old musical theatre and its relentless demand for all-singing, all-dancing comic talent. In its way, musical is as important to the smell and colour of 20th-century Britishness as rock music, 
it just had less effective PR. Below the surface, new kinds of comedy were slouching unsteadily towards those microphones, cameras, and footlights. One could write a useful contemporary history by simply asking of any particular time, what made people laugh? To be British now became bound up with a string of radio and television shows, their catchphrases, lateral logic, and increasingly rude jokes. The harder tone of new British comedy came most obviously from two sources. One was the absurdity of many people's army experiences during and after the war. The other, with the later satire boom, was the absurdities of private boarding schools. No democracy had mobilised a greater proportion of its people in the World War. No country sent more of the children of its elite to boarding schools with strange rules. What followed from these two incontrovertible facts was very funny indeed. It meant elongated, grotesque faces. Weird nasal voices, nonsense words that could send apparently normal people into hysterics. A private British world created some of the most chippy, eloquent people on the planet in the sixth decade of the twentieth century. One of the most idiosyncratic and energetic aspects of British culture could be called popular surrealism. It was not the surrealism of experimental filmmakers or painters, but of Max Wall, goons, and eventually pythons as well. The name Goon, picked up from Popeye cartoons, seems to have begun with Spike Milligan. In the opening stages of the war, Milligan had played childish, boredom-repelling games with fellow gunners around their battery in Bex Hill. Milligan was a working-class child of the British Empire. His father was Irish and had performed in music halls as a youth, alongside another boy called Charlie Chaplin, who then disappeared off abroad. He had then joined the British Army. Like his father before him, so that Spike was born in India and brought up there and in Burma. It seems to have been a golden time before his father lost his army job in pre-war defence cuts, and the family had to return, settling in Catford, South London. Poorly educated, Spike got a job as a clerk until he was sacked for stealing cigarettes. He taught himself to play the trumpet and dabbled in politics, joining the Young Communists, and according to one report, flirting with Oswald Mosley's black shirts too. Then, in 1939, as he recalled later, an envelope arrived containing a cunningly worded invitation to participate in World War II. Army service bored and frightened Milligan, but it was the making of him. Tens of thousands of soldiers found that the fear of death, nutty regulations, stupid officers, and the incompetence of the war machine required a more raucous, sardonic humour than they had been used to at home. Spike was sent as a signaller to North Africa. Where he was duly shelled, lost friends, and was injured, always playing jokes and making up games to pass the boring times. As the fighting moved north through Italy, he saw another gunner take part in one of the army variety shows put on to amuse the troops. This was Harry Seacombe, a commercial traveller's son from Swansea, who, like Spike, had been a clerk before the war. The two were soon working together, part of a loose association of military comedians and musicians who would eventually tickle the nation when they returned. Dick Emery. Benny Hill, Frankie Howard, and Tommy Cooper among them. Meanwhile, in India, Peter Sellers, a young half-Jewish impressionist, was busy impersonating Sikh officers and RAF commanders. Michael Benteen, an old Etonian intelligence officer and actor, would later complete the quartet, the most influential act of British comedy surrealism in the fifties, and one of the most important ever. Almost all of them had some musical connections. Sellers's mother and grandmother had been singers and dancers. And Seacombe's family was saturated in musical culture, but they had all added a new twist—the result of those transforming army years. 
The Goon Show was subversive without being party political, or even conventionally political at all. Spike Milligan described it as against bureaucracy. Its starting point is one man shouting gibberish in the face of authority. Of one of the goons' classic villains, Milligan said that it was a chance to knock people who my father, and I as a boy, had to call sir. Colonels, chaps like Gritpipe Thin, with educated voices, who were really bloody scoundrels. They'd con and marry old ladies. They were cowards charging around with guns. And one of his producers, Peter Eaton, said later, We were trying to undermine the standing order. We were anti-commonwealth, anti-empire, anti-bureaucrat, anti-armed forces. Milligan, Seacom, Benteen and Sellers were demobilised in the rationed, bureaucrat-dominated Britain of the 40s, so it is hardly surprising that their humour was aimed at unthinking patriotism and official bungling. It was exactly what people wanted and needed, however nervous the BBC felt when the show began broadcasting in 1951. Older listeners found it alarming and baffling, but millions were quickly mimicking the silly voices, appalling puns and nonsense words of goonery. Milligan remained prickly about being working class and was political enough to support the campaign for nuclear disarmament away from the microphones. His comedy was meant to sting. Yet there was a warmth about the goons that drew some of that sting. Had it been otherwise, it is unlikely that the Duke of Edinburgh and the Prince of Wales would have been quite such enthusiastic fans. All Fall Down, Suez Some sense of the popularity of the Tories' crown prince throughout Churchill's sluggish and frustrating last government, Anthony Eden, can be gauged from his reception in the 1955 election when Churchill had at last retired. Most of the time he travelled in his own car, declaring that if I cannot travel in my own country without an armed guard, I would rather retire from politics. But when he went by train, women arrived at the windows at each stop with huge bouquets of flowers. Here was the man who had stood up to Hitler, decently waited for Churchill to retire, and was now a great architect of post-war global peace. Shortly after the election, Eden invited the new Soviet leader, Khrushchev, to London. Despite a completely drunk translator, the visit had gone well, though at one point Khrushchev was introduced to the hunting and shooting Tory politician, Lord Lampton, as a shooting peer. The Soviet leader solemnly and sympathetically shook hands with Lampton, assuming that this meant he was under sentence of death and shortly to be shot. Eden was at root an intensely patriotic man, who thought Britain's Commonwealth links far more important than deeper entanglements with Europe. Among his weaknesses were his inherited foul temper and a racist disdain for Arabs. But for most people in 1956, Eden seemed an almost beau ideal, the man for the moment. Suez is often seen as a very short era of bad judgment, a crisis whose origins are obscure and whose consequences are hard to discern. This sells it short. Suez was about Britain's colonial history. It had begun as something very personal, a duel between an English politician of the old school and an Arab nationalist leader of the new post-war world. Anthony Eden and what he represented for the Britain of the mid-fifties are worth dwelling on. Through most of Eden's life, he had been a glittering and glamorous figure, hugely admired across the political spectrum, a global peacemaker and statesman, remembered by one colleague as half-mad baronet, half-beautiful woman. Eden had come from a landed, if sometimes eccentric, family. During the Suez Crisis, he was seen in Washington as the epitome of alien English snobbishness. 
In fact, one of his forebears, a baronet of Maryland, had been a great friend of George Washington and supporter of the American Declaration of Independence. Another had written a pioneering study of the poor, warmly praised by Karl Marx. Eden was never absolutely sure of his paternity. His mother was vivacious, but it was probably the wild, spendthrift, artistic Sir William Eden. He was a baronet out of the pages of a satirical novel, much given to hurling joints of roast lamb out of windows, and when riding to hounds, jumping closed level-crossing gates without waiting for oncoming trains. He had a terrible temper and used language so bad that when he was presiding over local police courts, Durham miners would come simply for the pleasure of hearing him swear. The boy Eden, a beautiful casket seething with unstable genes, went on to Eton. He fought bravely in the First World War, during which his oldest brother was killed in the trenches, and his much-loved younger brother was killed at sea, days after his sixteenth birthday. A liberal-minded Tory MP from 1923 onwards, Eden rose to become the foreign office minister who had face-to-face -face negotiations in the thirties with Mussolini, Hitler, the two men discovered they had fought opposite one another in the trenches and drew maps of their respective positions, and Stalin, whom Eden thought was a kind of oriental despot. After becoming foreign secretary and helping form the pre-war system of alliances and League of Nations agreements, he dramatically resigned in 1938 in protest at the appeasement of Nazi Germany, finally returning to serve Churchill, again as foreign secretary, from 1940 to 1945. A brilliant linguist, highly cultured and with a deep love of modern art, a lover of many women, a genuine diplomatist, he was familiar by the mid-fifties with most of the world's leaders. In 1954, at Geneva, he had arranged a key conference to try to keep peace in the new Cold War world, a summit seen then as a last throw to prevent the Third World War. So what of NASA? If Eden was the model of a kind of Englishness, Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser was the original of the anti-colonialist autocrat, who would become familiar over the decades to come, charismatic, patriotic, ruthless, opportunistic. Driving the British from Egypt was the cause that burned in him from his teenage years, and not surprisingly. Egypt, though nominally independent under its own king, had been regarded as virtually British until the end of the Second World War. It had been the centre of the fight against Rommel's Africa Corps, and the pivot around which Britain's domination of the Middle East revolved. The oil fields of Iran and Iraq, which kept Britain working, the Suez Canal, through which a quarter of British imports and two-thirds of Europe's oil arrived, the airfields which refuelled planes bound for India and Australia, all this made Egypt a hub, a pivot, Britain's Mediterranean naval. Most British families contained someone who had served in Egypt at some time. What was less special was the casual contempt British people tended to reserve for the Egyptians themselves, or wogs as they were more commonly known. Churchill had reacted to one moment of early Egyptian insubordination by shouting that if they didn't look out, we will set the Jews on them and drive them into the gutter. Before the Second World War, Egypt had been forced to sign a treaty, making it clear that the country was under Britain's thumb. Eden's head was even placed on Egyptian postage stamps to mark this humiliation. One wartime episode makes the relationship clear. In 1942, as Rommel's tanks drew nearer and Churchill was fulminating about Cairo being a nest of Hun spies, the British ambassador told Egypt's King Farouk that his Prime Minister was not considered sufficiently anti-German and would have to be replaced. The King summoned his limited reserves of pride and refused. It was, he insisted, a step too far, a breach of the 1937 treaty. 
Britain's ambassador simply called up armoured cars, a couple of tanks, and some soldiers, and surrounded King Farouk in his palace. The ambassador walked in and ordered the monarch to sign a grovelling letter of abdication, renouncing and abandoning for ourselves and the heirs of our body the throne of Egypt. At this, royal determination crumbled. The king asked pathetically if perhaps he could have one last chance. He was graciously granted it and sacked his prime minister. Life went on. The war went on. But Egyptians took note. Down in the Sudan. A young Egyptian army officer, Lieutenant Nasser, seething with indignation, complained in letters to friends about the surrender and servility shown to the British. Colonialism, he said, if it felt that some Egyptians intended to sacrifice their lives and face force with force, would retreat like a prostitute. The son of a postal worker, Nasser was soon at the centre of a group of radical army officers, Egypt's Free Officers Movement. Discussing how to get the British out and how to build a new Arab state, socialist rather than essentially Islamic. At this time and later under Nasser, the Muslim extremists whose thinking would one day influence Al Qaeda were being persecuted and even executed. Nasser was a ruthless, quietly determined man who naturally attracted followers. When King Farouk was eventually ousted by the Free Officers in July 1952, it took just two years for the young Nasser to oust the interim leader and seize control of the country himself. For him, this was good timing. After the war, Arab nationalism had made things much tougher for Britain. Its oil interests began to be challenged. Visiting British ministers found themselves stoned by Arab crowds. To Churchill's fury, Iran's prime minister, the popular and independent-minded Mohammad Mossadegh, had nationalised the Anglo-Iranian oil company in 1951. Though he was overthrown in a CIA-organised coup two years later, organised by a president's grandson, the gloriously named. Kermit Roosevelt. Mossadegh's action was a curtain raiser for what Nasser would do in Egypt. In Iraq, a British-sponsored king and prime minister were holding on by their fingertips and would later both be murdered by mobs. In Jordan, the British soldier who had commanded an Arab legion there since 1939, Sir John Glubb, known as Glubb Pasha, was sacked by the young King Hussein in March 1956. An Arab now wanted an Arab in charge of his army. Though it seems a small matter now, at the time it was seen as a slap across the face for London, provoked by the uppity Arabism sweeping the region. Eden blamed Nasser for this and told a junior minister, "What's all this poppycock about isolating and quarantining Nasser? Can't you understand that I want Nasser murdered?" Egypt was where the confrontation between old colonial power and the new Arab nationalism was always going to take place. Britain's military base at Suez, guarding its interest in the canal. Was more like a small country than a barracks. It was about the same size as Wales, with a vast border which was expensive and difficult to defend. So much that Attlee had considered closing it and pulling out shortly after the war. The base depended for survival on supplies and trade with the surrounding Egyptian towns and villages. But in the latter days of Farouk's reign, it was already being boycotted by nationalist Egyptians. One incident produced another. The tension rose. Off-duty British servicemen were shot. After one act of bloody retaliation involving the slaughter of poorly armed Arab policemen holed up in a building by British soldiers, the Cairo crowds turned on foreign-owned clubs, hotels, shops, and bars and set them alight. Britain found herself facing a guerrilla war. Eventually, following yet another coup, London began to negotiate a British withdrawal. There were, after all, other bases nearby, notably in Cyprus, where, however, another nationalist guerrilla war was going on, and in Jordan. 
Eden, then Foreign Secretary, came to think that withdrawal was inevitable and pointed out to his colleagues that we are ourselves in serious breach of the treaty, having eight times as many troops in the country as stipulated. To start with, all was civilised enough. Nasser even briefly met Eden, though he didn't much enjoy being lectured by the British leader in fluent Arabic. He complained later that Eden, in the grandiose surroundings of the British embassy, which made the British look like princes and the Egyptians like beggars, treated him like a rather dim junior official. The agreement stipulated that Britain would keep her rights over the canal, a deal soon broken by Nasser. At this stage, how great a threat was Nasser? His ability to rouse Arab opinion was impressive, and he wanted to make himself a spokesman for the non-aligned world generally. His Cairo radio, broadcasting across the Middle East, was the Al Jazeera of its day, though considerably less independent. At different times in the coming crisis, Nasser would be compared by British politicians and newspapers to Mussolini and Hitler, presented as a stooge of the Soviet Union, and then as a regional Arabist menace. He was a dictator, certainly. He was also a socialist of a kind, with great plans for a healthier, stronger, better educated country. He wanted to spread his power throughout the Arab world, beginning with the Yemen, Syria, Sudan and Jordan. Like Saddam Hussein, he had used poison gas against enemies and, like him, was regarded with alarm by other Arab rulers. Like Saddam, Nasser believed in the destruction of the then new state of Israel. Yet he would have remained a local irritant had it not been for a catastrophic blunder by Washington. Nasser's great ambition was the creation of the so-called High Dam at Aswan, a gargantuan project which had been dreamed about since the mid-forties and which might transform Egypt's economy. Three miles wide, it would create a 300-mile-long lake which would give the Egyptians eight times as much electric power as they then had and increase the country's fertile land by a third. It was much more than just another civil engineering project. Nasser talked of it being 17 times larger than the Greatest Pyramid. With Aswan, here was a new pharaoh bringing a new age to Egypt after centuries of colonial humiliation. The problem was that such a dam was also far beyond the resources of Nasser's Egypt. Loans had been discussed for years, and in 1956 Nasser had every reason to think that the Americans, followed by the British, were about to sign the cheques. Partly out of pique when he thought he was being given an ultimatum, Nasser's ambassador implied they could get help from the Russians and Chinese if the American terms were not good. The US Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, abruptly cancelled the offer. Nasser was livid. To show his anger and to find a new and secure source of revenue, he abruptly retaliated by seizing control of the Suez Canal, triggering the coup with code words given to a mass public rally. If the dam was not just a dam, the canal was not merely a canal. It was the ultimate liquid motorway, a vital artery of world trade, connecting Europe through the Mediterranean with India, Australia, New Zealand and the Far East. In the days before mass air freight, the only other way was round the Cape, infinitely further, slower and more expensive. Years before, Eden had called it the jugular vein of the British Empire, and in the mid-fifties a quarter of all British exports and imports came through it. It wasn't only Britain. Three quarters of Europe's oil came from the region, half of it through the canal. Indeed, a sixth of the whole world's cargoes went through it, some fifty ships every day, all of them paying tolls. Because of its international importance, and the fact that it had been built by a French engineer using French and British money, it had since 1888 been administered as an international facility, not an Egyptian one.
It was run by a company, 44% of which was in turn owned by the British government, thanks to an inspired piece of high Victorian entrepreneurship by Disraeli. It was not hard to see how this streak of colonial-owned internationalism running through Egypt felt like a violation. Nasser's plan, having seized it by military force just days after Dulles turned down his loan request, was to use payments from canal traffic to finance the next phase of his dam. The legality of the seizure was much debated around the world, but to the British government, Nasser's action was simple theft and a clear breach of international treaties. Worse, you couldn't leave Egyptians running something as sophisticated as a canal. Worse still, if it was allowed to stand, this act of impudence or bravado would inspire other Arab radicals and threaten the whole region. Since Nasser's act had been provoked by Washington, and since his revenge hurt Britain and France, Washington's allies, it might have been expected that President Eisenhower would staunchly back action against Nasser. The situation turned out to be rather more complicated. For one thing, Washington was pursuing a vigorous policy of trying to turf out the old colonial powers from the Middle East in favour of America herself. The US had oil of her own, but was always worried about the future, and acutely aware that two-thirds of the then-known world reserves were in the region. Special deals had been made with the Saudis and Iranians. This economic interest was augmented by loud and pious anti-colonialism, particularly from the Secretary of State, Dulles a devious and sanctimonious character who hated British imperialism with a founding father's fervour. He also loathed Eden, who cordially returned the feeling. Next, there was the intense worry in Washington about the Russians, who were making menacing noises about the liberal regime emerging in Hungary. Next, there was the ticklish question of the Panama Canal, which was controlled by the United States in a similar way to Anglo-French control in Suez. Ike and Dulles wanted no agreement emerging from the Middle East about international control of waterways which might affect Panama. Finally, by 1956, President Eisenhower was in the throes of trying to be re-elected on a peace and prosperity ticket and was outraged by his allies' untimely sabre-rattling. For all these reasons, America would prove to be Britain's enemy in her confrontation with Nasser, not her friend. Little of this was understood in London, where Eden's tough line with Nasser was hugely popular. The Conservative Party was roaring its support. The Labour opposition under Hugh Gateskill sounded, if anything, even more bellicose, as it would later in the opening phases of the Falklands War under Michael Foote. With a couple of exceptions, the Manchester Guardian and the Observer, the press, commentators and cartoonists were all on side and demanding punishment. The new science of opinion polling and individual messages of support pouring into Downing Street showed that public opinion agreed. NASA must be sorted out. But timing in politics is everything. Under American pressure, there followed months of diplomatic manoeuvring, during which Eden and his passionately anti-NASA Chancellor, Harold Macmillan, began to lose the initiative. There were international conferences, proposed compromise deals under which the countries dependent on the canal would have a new role in administering what would formerly be Egyptian property, and intensive negotiations at the United Nations. Britain kept hinting that it might yet come to war. Eisenhower and Dulles insisted that a peaceful solution should be found. By saying that America would have no part in trying to shoot our way through to the canal, and by referring to the problem of colonialism, they encouraged Nasser, who brusquely rejected all outside initiatives. America's attitude also encouraged Moscow, which led the diplomatic charge against Britain and France. Throughout this episode, and despite the crisis caused by Russia's crushing of the Hungarians, 
the US and the USSR stood shoulder to shoulder against London. This all felt increasingly ominous. And then a possible shortcut presented itself through the unlikely agency of Israel. It depended on America in the mid-50s almost as much as it does half a century later, but the Israeli government believed Nasser and his pan-Arabism was a threat to their existence not properly appreciated in Washington. Egypt had taken delivery of large quantities of Soviet bloc armaments, including the latest jet fighters and bombers. Nasser's anti-Israeli rhetoric was blood-curdling, and he was increasingly closely echoed by the Syrians and Jordanians. The Suez Crisis gave the Israeli government a one-off opportunity to strike their most serious enemy, and even enjoy Western air support while they did it. Thus came about the plot finally hatched by Britain, France and Israel to finish off Nasser. Harold Macmillan, the Chancellor, had originally suggested that Israel be used to attack Egypt from one flank, and the idea was enthusiastically taken up by Churchill in retirement. When first mentioned to Eden, he thought it eccentric and dismissed it. But, as the international talks dragged on and the government began to lose support and momentum at home, the idea of a plot resurfaced. End of Disc 6